This is the Trails Church Podcast. At the Trails Church, our mission is to glorify God by making disciples through the gospel in community and on mission. If you'd like more information about our church, visit our website, thetrails.org. Now here's today's podcast. Open your Bible with me to Acts chapter 4. Tucked in the middle of our passage this week is the beautiful phrase, great grace. Great grace. As Luke describes the church, he's sure to tell us that great grace was upon them all. Grace is vitally important to the Christian life and critical to true Christian community. The original Greek word is charis, which carries a load of ideas in one little word. Gift, kindness, favor, blessing. We'll explore specific ways the grace of God was poured out on the church of long ago in a moment. But first, I wanted to just spend a moment and praise God for the gifts, the kindness favor, the blessings that He's poured on you, the Trails Church. I don't get to do this often, but it seemed right in light of the text. As I thought about evidences of great grace at work in our church, I immediately thought of you, the people that God has placed in this congregation. We truly have been entrusted with an embarrassment of riches A church body that hungers to know God, who stands on His Word, who loves and cares for one another in sharing one another's joys and sorrows. I praised God for the kindness in providing community group leaders and Bible study teachers, family ministry workers, servants in all sorts of ministry happening in the life of our church, committed to the same mission making disciples. I rehearsed the Lord's kindness to us in providing elders to lead our church with shepherding hearts and their wives, which way outpace them. A church staff that enjoys harmony in serving the body of Christ together. And I praise the Lord for adding to our number those who are being saved. Some of you came to Saving Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, right here in the soil of the Trails Church. Great grace. I also thought about how you gave generously and sacrificially when it came to finding a permanent place for our church to meet. Even when prices increased due to inflation, you gave even more. And now here we are just a few weeks away from worshiping in a permanent place, a place that will be our own. And that would not be possible without your partnership in the gospel. I mean that in a Pauline sense, investing your life into this community, investing your resources into this place. Are we perfect? Oh, absolutely not. Have we arrived? No, not a chance. But by God's grace... His great grace, His undeserved kindness, His unmerited favor. We have much to be thankful for. 
For the sake of time, I, I need to move on. But I wonder, what things would you add? What great grace do you see at work in the Trails Church? We might talk about that over lunch uh, with a friend or a family member today. Our passage contains the second summary in the book of Acts describing the Jerusalem church. The first summary we, we studied was Acts 2, 42-47, where we explored many of the same themes that we find here. A church committed to the mission of making disciples, love for one another, radical generosity, gospel proclamation. These had become hallmarks of their culture. When we hold up both of these summaries side by side, we discover that now, though the church's size has changed, its culture hasn't. They're committed to the very same things as in the beginning. And so, as we open God's Word at an important point in the life of our church, about to move locations, stepping into some unknown, I pray that this would be true of us, both now and for years and years to come, that the culture that we have known, this commitment to gospel centrality, to building a community on the Word, to making disciples, love for one another, radical generosity, and gospel proclamation would never change. Let's pray it would never change. The grace-filled description of the Jerusalem church in Acts 4, 32-37, contains a compelling picture of how the gospel recalibrates the very heart and soul of a local church. The picture we witness is one of authentic Christianity. It moves us from living with self and our own agenda at the center to a new way of living with Christ and His kingdom at the center. While this passage may seem foreign to us in some ways, it's certainly meant to make us feel at home in others. We'll observe our passage under two headings, both serving as windows we're peering through to observe what we see happening in this church. Those two things are this. First, the grace of unity. And second, the grace of generosity. Tracing graces together this morning. Would you stand to your feet as we read from God's holy and inerrant word? Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 37. This is God's holy and inerrant word. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to them was his own but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. 
Amen. The first characteristic that we come to in this passage is the grace of unity. The expression of unity seen in this church was not built upon their shared interests or the majority of their kids going to the same school or the flimsy foundation of politics or even the cause of social activism. No, the unity of the church was found in the gospel itself. The gospel is the thing that united the people of God. And the first thing I want to show you is how they were inwardly united. Luke tells us in verse 32 that the full number of these new believers were of one heart and soul. The expression full number draws our attention to the fact that the church continued to grow as the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. What started as a little church of 120 first grew to over 3,000. Now it's stretched to more than 15,000 new Christians gathering together in Jerusalem. Yet, even though the church was growing so rapidly, it never outpaced its spirit of unity. It never outpaced its spirit of unity. The church was united by Christ and united in Christ they shared in one salvation. They were baptized in one spirit. They were adopted sons and daughters of the living God, now placed in the same spiritual family. Luke says specifically they were united heart and soul. Heart and soul. As I thought about that phrase, my thoughts drifted toward a beginning piano tune that we taught our kids when they were little. It's annoying after the 8,000th time you've heard it. You might not know the name offhand, but you would know it if you heard it. And it's a piece not meant to be played alone. In fact, when the different parts are played by themselves, they're not that great. The melody in the treble clef goes... Dun, dun, dun. Sing with me. Da, 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 da. Come on. Da, 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 da. Okay, that's good. And then the bass clef is this kind of plunky cowboy thing. You know the, you know the rest. Well, what Luke is, is saying here is um, when the two parts, when everybody plays their part, the church sings. When those two parts of that piano song are played together, it does sing. And when the body of Christ understands that when I play my part together, the work of God sings through our lives. When the church lives in unity, the way that it's meant to live, and in the melody and harmony of the church, we hear the answer to a prayer of Jesus. Christ himself prays in John 17, 21 to the Father that they, the disciples, may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. There's this wonderful picture of the kind of intimacy, uh, relationship that the Father and Son have. Jesus wants the people of God to have as well. And he carries on in the prayer, so that 
the world may believe that you have sent me. And that leads us right to the second part, the second aspect of this unity. The church was united outwardly. The unity the church treasured did not cause it to turn in on itself. Rather, it compelled them outward and onward in mission. We read in verse 33 how the Spirit of God gave great power to their evangelistic efforts as the apostles were teaching and preaching the resurrection of Jesus, proving that He was the promised Messiah, the one who had made full payment for sin, was dead and buried, and on the third day raised to life again. This is the good news that they were preaching for the forgiveness of sin, for all who would believe in Jesus. That good news still rings through this hall this morning. Jesus saves. It was the Spirit-empowered preaching of the Gospel that created at the same time a culture of deep discipleship and effective evangelism. You see that? The preaching, empowered preaching of the Gospel created at the same time a culture of deep discipleship and effective evangelism. There are often signs mentioned in the book of Acts that, that accompany evangelistic efforts. But here, the only sign mentioned is the grace that accompanied them. The church itself was the sign. Jesus had taught the disciples this truth during His time on earth. John 13, 35 explains, By your love for one another, all people will know that you are my disciples. The lost world saw how the gospel of Jesus turned the lives of these people upside down and revolutionized the way that they lived. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. There was great unity among the church because great grace was upon them. One of the most constant questions that I have asked as your pastor over these last five years is how do we keep the culture of our church the same as we move forward together on mission? Our elders have discussed this regularly. Uh, I pester Jamie with this question all the time. If you want to wonder what's Matt thinking about tonight, this is probably it. And I know some of the ways I know some of them. In order to know the kind of unity that we've experienced, we need servant-hearted leaders. Um, we need a culture that doesn't tolerate gossip, even disguised as, let me just share something with you. We must work diligently to uproot pride from the soil of our hearts. Each of us must seriously fight sin, besetting sins in our lives. All of that is vitally important. But I came across a beautiful quote from A.W. Tozier this week that I think reaches all the way down to the heart of the matter. Uh, my thoughts on dealing with this text drifted to heart and soul. Uh, his also drifted to the piano, but I, I think in a much more meaningful way. You, you can judge. This is what Tozier writes about 
how we would experience this kind of continued unity. Has it ever occurred to you that 100 pianos all tuned to the same fork are automatically tuned to one another? They are of one accord by being tuned, not to each other, but to another standard to which each one must individually bow. So 100 worshipers meet together, each one looking away to Christ, are in heart nearer to each other than they could possibly be were they to become unity conscious and turn their eyes away from God to strive for closer fellowship. You hear that? How do we continue not only to maintain but grow in deeper unity? By keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus. Tuning our hearts to His. Bowing our will to His. And in doing so, enjoying the benefit that flows from that kind of gospel unity. With that being a sort of North Star, I wonder if each of us might ask ourselves this question. In what practical ways, then, can I strengthen gospel unity in our church? What practical ways can I strengthen that? Perhaps in our community groups this week, you might think through things that can both tear down and also build up church unity. What a vision this is, isn't it? You love this? It seems like something worth investing the rest of our lives in, I think. And here we are. This passage gives us a vision about what is possible because of the grace of Jesus. No one summarizes this better than King David. Psalm 133.1, we read as our call to worship this morning. Behold, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's pray that we would know the great grace of unity in Jesus. The second characteristic that describes this church is how they came to know the grace of generosity. The grace of generosity. Here we arrive at the the main emphasis of the passage, which demonstrates what it looks like for a group of people who treasure Christ more than anything else in this world. When these early Christians devoted their lives to Jesus, it involved every part including something, well, so practical is how they viewed their money. The picture here is not one just of mere philanthropy, as wonderful as that is, but true gospel generosity, a generosity toward God and toward His people because of an understanding of how generous God has been toward us. Now, I want to keep a steady quarter note of constant grace going through these points so that we don't lose our way. And the first thing I want to show you is that this group of believers understood the grace of receiving. The grace of receiving. What do I mean by that? Well, first, they understood that everything in their life came from the gracious hand of God, their money, their possessions, their wealth, their health. Everything that they had was seen as something that had been received. And as a result, it changed not only how they viewed their net worth, but how they viewed people. 
They put people before possessions. Verse 32 says, No one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. The word that understands this way of thinking about possessions is stewardship. A steward is a person who administers the property or house or finances or estate of another person, not spending it just on their own, but doing so for the good and the pleasure of someone greater. And in this sense, we learn that the Christians saw their possessions, not of their own, but as something they wanted to steward, to see God, their master, glorified in in how it was spent. Not just a portion of it, but all of it. Somehow, even in our day, we've come to believe that as long as we're giving 10% of our income to the Lord, we can just do whatever we want with the other 90% of that. Have you heard that before? The first 10% goes to the Lord, the other 90% is yours. I mean, it works mathematically, it just doesn't work biblically. Because everything that we've been given is meant to be stewarded. However it is that the Lord leads us to invest, or to give, or to save, or to spend, is to be seen as an act of worship. Why? Because what is there that we possess that did not come through grace? Everything you've been given in your life is an undeserved blessing from the Lord. You may have worked, but the Lord did the work. The Lord granted His grace. These people understood that. The second thing I want to show you is how the church came to understand the grace of giving. Verses 34 and 35 tell us that when needs arose for the church, people sold properties. They brought the proceeds to the apostles to distribute to those in need. Now, What's happening here, I need to say to a room full of Texans, this is not communism, okay? If you try to make this your defense of communism, it doesn't work. There's no compulsion for people to come and give. We'll learn in a couple of weeks, they're giving, they didn't have to sell these fields. They did so because they wanted to. They gave cheerfully. We must also understand that this is not all the people selling all their properties. It's not every convert forced to sell their home and then live homeless, because then what would you have? A nomadic, wandering people. And that we know from the witness of the New Testament, and, and from Acts 2.42, don't we? They met in their homes giving grace to God. They stewarded even their homes to the glory of Jesus. So what's happening here? Well, the verb suggests that when a real need arose in the body of Christ, people who owned properties, people who were landlords of other locations, not their own primary residence, but the things they'd they'd amassed. When we amass wealth, our bank account just has more zeros. This was not the case in ancient Middle East. Here, the way they gained wealth was by acquiring properties. But here we see when a need arose within the body of Christ, they then used their wealth, they used their means to help care for one another. Caring for one another is at the heart of this text. Because you can also give money and not actually care for the person. But what's happening here is a mixture of both. How did that happen? How many of you had to teach your two-year-old the word mine? No one. Yet it's innocent, isn't it? From birth, we're taught to see things as, this is mine. What that means is, this is not yours. 
But when we understand the generosity of God to us, when we understand and we really lay hold of and grasp the beauty and glory and worth of Jesus, what it allows us to do with our grip on wealth is just to let go. Why? Because we have a greater treasure. And the more we grow in our understanding of the gospel, the easier that becomes. The pain of sharing our money becomes a pleasure. David Peterson writes on this passage, he says, the remarkable point of this verse is the implication that it was the powerful preaching of the gospel that motivated the earliest Christians to such generosity, not specifically preaching about money or impassioned exhortations from leaders to share possessions. The gospel message about God's grace in Christ inspired a culture of self-giving in love. To say it in a different language, the power of the gospel transformed their hearts to, from mine to thine. Pardon my old English rhyme. From mine to thine. As we think about this passage and how, how we're meant to engage with it, we've got to understand from our, our hermeneutics, how do we translate the Bible? Now, some passages are descriptive, just describing something that happened in history. Others are prescriptive, prescribing us to live in a certain way. Well, which is this? Is it one or the other? Well, I think it's both. What Luke is not prescribing is that we must sell things. You don't have to sell, right? right just let me just uh, release the air out of the room. You don't have to sell your truck this afternoon, guys. Ladies, you don't have to sell your pool. Just think about the pragmatics of that. It doesn't work, but uh, you don't have to do those things. But the thing is, do these things own you? That's what Jesus is after here. This is what the New Testament church is after. It's not prescribing that we must sell things, though the Lord may lead you to. That might be a step of obediently following Jesus. Particularly here in the way that the early church needed to do that in order to endure persecution, they did what was necessary. Yet, Luke is laying out principles for living the authentic Christian life. One of a new community so rooted in the joy of God's salvation and so committed to living their whole lives under the banner of love your neighbor as yourself. They freely gave what they had been freely given. Luke may not be prescriptive here, but the Lord Jesus is in Luke 12, 32-34, where he says to his disciples, Fear not, little flock. And I want to pause there. That may be the one thing you need to hear from this sermon. Fear not, little flock. What a precious word from the Lord Jesus. He continues, For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what the Father's done. Given us the kingdom of God. Keys of the kingdom are ours. Verse 33, Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that don't grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And that's the thing. 
It's the same proposition with Jesus and the rich young ruler who said, I've obeyed all the commandments my whole life. My morality is upstanding. How do I enter the kingdom? Jesus says to him, sell all your possessions and come on in. It even says that Jesus loved him. Jesus looked at him and loved him. But the rich young ruler loved his things more and turned and walked away. What do you love more? What do you love most? And as we reach verses 35 through 36, we meet Barnabas. Luke includes him here because he plays an important role later in the New Testament. But he's also here an example of one person that represents the whole community. It's it's easy for this to become a nameless and faceless church of old as we read passages like this. Luke understands that. The Lord in His wisdom and speaking to us through His Word understands that. So here he puts forth Barnabas as an example of a person who represents the community. He sells a field and brings it and privately lays it at the apostles' feet, asking them to distribute it however they saw fit. That kind of generosity happens in the body of Christ right here already. And I'll I'll save the name and face, but just so you know, even within the last month, a church member came and just handed me an envelope that said, for a brother or sister in need. And then in parentheses, Luke 4, Acts, we're in Acts, written by Luke, Acts 4, 34 and 35. One example of what I know happens very regularly already among us. Our church is filled with people who have come to treasure Jesus so that now they cheerfully and sacrificially give back to him out of what he has given. And I am so grateful that's true. To each of you who give generously, sacrificially to the Lord through his church, thank you for doing that. One, for walking in obedience to honoring the Lord with the first 10% of your income to giving generously, not not begrudgingly, not because you're coerced, but because you treasure Jesus more than the things of the world. Yet I know there's still a sizable percentage of people who, who are members here and give either very little or not at all. And when I think about that, my heart is heavy, not because of what I, I wonder what we could accomplish if just every person in this room gave 10% to the Lord through the church, we would never lack one thing. But my heart's less heavy about that and more heavy just for you. Concerned as your pastor that you may have fallen in love with the things of the world instead of the things of the kingdom. Or um, you don't maybe yet understand how much has truly been given you through the finished work of Christ. And so I I just want us to pray together. Ask, God, would you move in my heart to help see all that I've been given and to trust you. Some of you don't give because you don't trust the Lord. You say, I can barely make ends meet now. How am I supposed to add a whole percentage to the Lord? Well, um, you readjust things quickly, swiftly, so that you can walk in obedience to what the word says and trust him, not our money. That's what's at the heart of this, to be a joyful, cheerful people of giving. And so I don't want to try to convince you to do that, but I want to invite you to continue to look at the scripture and ask God's word to speak into your life. Um, 
as a very practical application. If you're single, I want to just encourage you this afternoon, this evening, get out your budget and look through it. And just ask the question, am I generous toward God? This is where it gets a little more complicated. If you're married, this afternoon, this evening, get alone with your spouse. Look at your budget together, which you should have already done together, talking about these things. And and seriously consider, are we generous toward God? Are we walking in obedience in sacrificially and cheerfully giving? And I pray that those conversations would be fruitful. I'm praying that because of this passage, that some of us would reevaluate how we're spending money. Maybe that it would lead some of us to give more than we ever have. Maybe someone even will sell a property or something that they don't really need and contribute those monies to some gospel work in the world. But I pray that each of us who've tasted and seen the goodness of God in Christ we might leave here praising God for his grace to us in Jesus. We would leave here thanking the Lord for the graces he's given to our church family and also to us personally as individuals, how he's blessed our lives, how he is our provider, our protector, the God who goes before us, the God who meets our needs. And we would live in the good of all of that for his glory. Through the window of this passage, we're able to look in and see for ourselves how this early church was unified and selfless and caring and generous. So I began the sermon by just commending you, by praising God for you. I'm boasting in Christ, his work in you. And I want to end by us just praying for that to continue so that as we move forward in mission together, we would never go past the main things that God has called us to. This mission of glorifying God by making disciples. A culture of gospel unity where Jesus is the thing that has knit our hearts together. And that results in a culture of great generosity. Let's pray. Lord, I pray you would truly give us great grace. I thank you for the great grace that you've lavished on us in Christ. Grace upon grace, placing us in this family of faith for meeting our needs, for providing for us. I ask that you would increase our faith, that you would strengthen us, fill us with your spirit, and send us out renewed with the lavish, unmerited grace we've been shown in Jesus. I ask this all in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from The Trails Church. We hope you have been encouraged, equipped, and edified by time spent together in God's Word. And again, if you'd like to find out more about The Trails Church, visit our website, thetrails.org.